This episode is brought to you by Berkland Associates. Okay, so your company is growing fast. Stuff's moving a thousand miles a minute. It's exciting, but all that speed without the right systems in place can hurt you at scale. Enter Berkland Associates. Fractional CFOs, bookkeepers, tax and people ops experts, Berkland helps you build the right systems that can keep up with your growth and can handle all the finance, accounting, tax, and hiring services that consumer startups need to scale. From ensuring your fundamentals are sound to making sure you're prepared for the next funding round, Berkland Associates gets consumer startups. For more information, head to berklandassociates.com and you can check out their toolkits for startups as well. Link is in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Skillful. As you know, we've been talking about Skillful. Skillful runs online immersive programs that help people launch and accelerate careers in strategic business roles in tech. By joining one of their sprints, not only do you get direct access to mentors who live and breathe the jobs daily, but you also get access to the Skillful community even after your sprint ends. Skillful is a group of ambitious, humble, and generous business professionals from across North America who take action to accelerate each other's careers, referrals, candid advice, mentors hiring mentees onto their teams, and so much more magic. You'll get access to an internal job board where community members connect other Skillfulers directly with hiring managers. And you can create a network that is more engaged and relevant to your current career than your college alumni network. Become a Skillful Insider or apply for an upcoming cohort at joinskillful.com. Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Madeline Kulin, for the intro to Lori Coulter, founder of Somersault. Somersault produces flattering swimwear designed to fit you and not the other way around. It was such a blast chatting with Lori about how she developed Somersault into one of the fastest growing swimwear brands. It's really amazing. Without further ado, here's Lori. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Doing great. Really glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time for coming on the show. Really excited for this chat. Wanted to first talk about the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to fashion and also entrepreneurship? That's a great question. So most people don't know that when I was in college, even I would just tell my friends, hey, if I had a great idea, I would do it. So you know, I don't believe in being a born entrepreneur, but some people do have that propensity. And I was always interested. 
Uh, my first business plan was actually a merchandise plan for expanding um, McLean Company, which is a, a distributor that supplies was eventually bought by Walmart, but they did convenience stores. And so really just a whole merch plan for them. And even in high school, I had some side gigs as well, but the first official one. And then uh, I think I'm, I've always been a merchant at heart. I was always interested in fashion and apparel. Um, my mother worked for the University of Missouri um, extension program training, actually, um, workers in regards to apparel construction. So I grew up with that as well and just really had a passion for the industry and the intersection of tech, fashion, and, and data at a very early date. And I saw, you know, really while I was in, in graduate school, what the internet was doing um, for apparel companies in particular. And, and what's so ironic is that, you know, today we have so much technology across the board, across all industries, in, including e-commerce and apparel, but each garment is still made by a sewer and a machine. And I just find that so fascinating. I appreciate you you mentioning all this. And I'm curious, just thinking of the big wide world of fashion and you know apparel, how did you narrow your scope to focus on women's bathing suits? Uh, a lot of people don't, don't know this. Um, Somersault's actually my second kind of apparel business. Um, my co-founder, Reshma Chatteram Chamberlain, and I are both serial entrepreneurs. And 10 plus years ago, I had launched a business in partnership with a major retailer in store doing digital body scanning and, and made to order apparel. And we tackled swimwear at that time. And what's interesting is I've always had a passion for really being inclusive from a, a body perspective and really servicing women kind of how they want to be, when, where, and how they want to be spoken, spoken to and offering a product that really solved a, a problem for them and filled a need in their wardrobe. And, and swimwear was just an obvious choice because of the challenges. You know, we all know it's torture still to this day for women to, to shop for a swimsuit. And, and it was a fit challenge that we could solve, particularly from a data perspective. Um, and what, what's fascinating in, in June of 2016, I met with my now co-founder, shared what I, what the, the intellectual property I was sitting on, not only in swimwear, but we had done, I had done a ton of apparel, um, activewear, loungewear, you name it. And she'd been working, uh, with some of the larger direct to consumer brands on the, the East Coast, uh, that were venture backed. And, um, she really challenged me to look hard at the business model. And so unbeknownst to her, I went away from that conversation in June of 2016 wrote the initial business plan and strategy for Slimmer Salt, saw that there was a clear opportunity in swimwear, um, not only from a, a product need perspective, but just so much disruption to be had. Swimwear had been done in this over-sexualized, Sports Illustrated kind of way for so long that brands really only knew how to market in that vein. And then secondly, they were typically licensed um licensed products or licensed brands that were sold through multiple middlemen. So the opportunity to connect directly with the consumer iterate on that feedback, offer her in a timely fashion was just wide open and ours to own. Got it. So you saw the opportunity back in 2016 to really actually create a brand, um, essentially, in women's swimwear, um, collecting a a ton of data from uh, your previous venture. And could you uh, dive into a little bit about the IP that you're able to collect beforehand? Yeah, so we had scanned over 10,000 women collected over 1.5 million measurements and made an actual swimsuit for each of them. And so we had that 
one-to-one feedback loop from a, in a way that, you know, no focus group can provide where we actually made a custom suit for each of them and then made sure that it fit after the fact. And so that process is so integral to our offering at Somersault still to this day. And it's relevant for all of our garment categories. And the other thing that is so important is we had optimized our supply chain for the quickest turnaround possible. So we were back to the store in as fast as 10 days. So we really took this modular approach to design that we utilize still at Somersault to this day that allows us to move at an exceptional pace uh, in our supply chain, both from a product development and then also a manufacturing turnaround perspective. That speed has, you know, essentially our goal all along at Somersault was to be a go to, is, is to be that go-to lifestyle brand for our generation of consumer. And so that speed of moving across categories, you know, that we've continued to build out at Somersault um, was really part of who we were or are from, from day one. That's amazing. Um, and that's really, really cool that you had, you collected all that data of, of scans over 10,000 women and you had these one-to-one fit. What were the incumbents, would you say, doing wrong um, or missing the mark um, when it comes to um, maybe like proportions um, in, in swimwear? It reminds me a little bit of a conversation that I had with Andy Dunn at Bonobos where he sensed the opportunity was for people that look like him, for men that look, look like him, uh, for pants, the dimensions were wrong and they weren't very comfortable. And so that was the foundation of Bonobos. I'm, I'm kind of curious if that was kind of like a similar vein, what was happening that that you kind of, the aha moment there um, that kind of launched uh, Somersault. Well, certainly, I think just going back to the over-sexualized approach that so many brands had taken for years, um, they really leaned into that messaging around sexy is what sells. And Somersault, if you look at our earliest decks, even pre-Somersault, we talked a lot about inspiring joy in the lives of our consumer, really encouraging her to dive in when before she might have felt uncomfortable in a swimsuit for some reason or inhibited. Uh, we wanted her to go back to her days as a child at the beach and the joy just we all felt at that point in time and make sure she wasn't withholding from the, the really good things in life. So it, we really turned that messaging around swimsuit into action, just loving life, engaging with life and inspiring fun and joy. And, and that's that's the differentiator. Um, how did you approach brand and marketing at the early stages to make Somersault very as such an inclusive brand that it's known for? Yeah, so I, I think that the, the interesting thing is the brand is really a f- reflection of who we are as founders, first and foremost. And uh, we just understood that our consumer sentiment around just over-sexualized, tired brands that, by the way, look totally inauthentic on social media and don't work anymore. It, it really went back to authenticity, to who we are to what we knew our consumer wanted, the trust that she put in us, not only in swimwear, but really to, to fill her entire wardrobe. And so the brand is itself just has been amazing to watch as the, as we, you know, see the consumer engage with, you know, really all of our, our platforms and then to continue to support what we're doing and the, and the mission that we're pursuing and then just the way that we are featuring women in media. Totally. I'd love to kind of hear a bit more about like examples about authenticity and because 
I feel like a lot of brands, and, and, and certainly investors talk about this too, about how brands of today need to be authentic, right? And sometimes I feel like authenticity, the word, it's been used so many times that it's sometimes better just to have examples, if that makes sense. And so when you were thinking about, okay, how do we show potential customers or folks that really would resonate with our brand, that we are truly authentic. What were kind of maybe examples in the messaging, examples maybe in images that you that you did with photo shoots or how you use social media to kind of display authenticity? Um, if you have some examples, I would love to hear them. Well, one that comes to mind immediately is two summers ago, we launched our Everybody is a Somersault Body campaign and we partnered with around 20 amazing women that were leaders in their field. We believe they reflected Somersault's messaging around joy and positivity and fun. And then we featured them both in social media as well as uh, we had a, a subway campaign uh, in New York. And then we we expanded that campaign this summer to, to include out of home and billboards as well as as really to a direct mail campaign. And in that that campaign, I think you see just, you know, a wide range of diverse women, uh, both intellectually, um, but also every other way in a, in a direct mail piece. And, and I can't tell you, I mean, we had thousands of inbound unprompted messages just thanking us for the work we were doing and for really portraying um, women like them. And in some cases, you know, this is the first time I'm proud to share a catalog or sometimes they would call it a magazine uh, with my daughter. This is our bedtime read, like uh, unbelievable appreciation from the consumer. And and what's so fascinating is that when you see something authentic, you recognize it, right? It's that it factor. When it's inauthentic, you also recognize it. And, and obviously it just depends on the brand. And And women are smart. Our customer is very savvy and she does recognize authenticity when she sees it. I really appreciate those examples. How also did you approach the online direct-to-consumer channel and what were the previous ways that women were shopping uh, for swimsuits? So what's fascinating about swimwear in particular is that, you know, even pre-internet, direct mail was a huge um, makeup of the overall market. So it was already a category that was ripe for e- e-commerce just because the consumer appreciates shopping from the privacy of our own home. And so from that perspective, you know, I uniquely understood uh, that it, not only was there a huge opportunity from an industry perspective and just no clear leader uh, in the direct-to-consumer space, but that there was also just this consumer affinity from for, for shopping from home. That's really interesting too, because we talk a lot on this show about when you start an e-commerce company, one that involves anything physical, it's hard that because there's always that friction of, hey, I can't try it on. What does that look like on me? I can't taste. I can't touch it. But if customers or if women are actually buying direct to mail, then you actually don't have that friction. That friction's eliminated because they're doing they're they're already used to in their in their buyer behavior to shop for swimsuits that they cannot see or touch. So I think that actually I'd imagine that you had lower obstacles in that sense than maybe other brands, if that all makes sense. 
And not only that, we find that the trust factor that we've built with swimwear, it's really an amazing category for loyalty. The switching costs for her once she find, finds a brand that works for her is so high emotionally uh, that she just wants to find and continue to be loyal to Somersault or, you know. Um, in, in that case, in addition, it really gives us the trust to build out and continue to sell to her throughout her closet over and over again. So we use swimwear as that wedge uh, to build that relationship, to build uh, trust over time, and then to continue to sell you know, all categories of apparel. No, I love that. I love that. Kind of backing up a bit, when you first get started, how did you think about how many SKUs you should start with? types of colors, types of fits that made sense? And what was that maybe pre-launch to launch strategy? Uh, From a merch perspective, we had a really tight offering to start. Um, Ironically, many of our core styles still to this day were with us at launch, which I think a lot of people find fascinating. Of course, color is always important. And what I love about Somersault is I'll get photos and comments. People recognize Somersault wherever they are. If they're at the beach or the pool, it seems like most people, Somersault customers can see our brand and what other people are wearing. And it's, it's obviously color and line, but it's also silhouette, which we just, we just absolutely love. From our perspective, we, you know, had, a, had raised very little funding pre-launch. So it was important to us that what we were selling uh, worked and edited down to just the absolute essentials that we knew would take off. And, and, and quite honestly, Mike, it was amazing. We saw that exceptional traction really from day one. And then certainly as we over time kind of closed um, our series seed and then eventually, you know, A and B, um, that continued kind of top 1% traction from a venture back consumer facing startup perspective has propelled us to, to, to the level we are today. And, and most people don't know, we launched May 23rd of 2017. So we're just over four years old. And a year and a half of that is pandemic related. So really crazy to think of what we've managed through in our short lifetime. That's awesome. No, that's, that's amazing. Why did you choose to fundraise as opposed to bootstrap? It was really clear, Mike, from day one that we had that exceptional traction and that it was a unique window of opportunity to go out and acquire customers and to really, uh, from a timing perspective, obviously we weren't first to the direct-to-consumer space, but we're certainly not last. Uh, and we, we felt that launching would be more difficult if we even waited a year for a couple of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, Victoria's Secret had pulled out of the swimwear market at that time in December of 2016. And so that gave us a real wedge. And at one point, they had, t- had 10 to 15% of all swimwear dollars sold in the U.S. market. And so knowing that uh, market share was ours for the taking without even disrupting was really important to the timing of our launch. And we pushed really hard to make sure we were in the market by the summer of uh, 2017. And then the other, the other kind of factor that was just important is that even on very, very limited funding, we were still in that top 1% of venture-backed consumer-facing startups from a traction perspective by month 13. And so just knowing that 
it was clear that we um, should pursue from a fundraising perspective. And, you know, that's continued to hold true. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, the fact that you're in the top 1% and you can understand that, okay, this could be a very, very, very large business and understand the market dynamics there. Did you get any pushback? I'm kind of curious since swimsuits, it's, I want to say, I, I, obviously you're the expert here, but I want to say for, for most states, it's a, it's a seasonal business. Um, or, or is it not? We do hear that. But what's fascinating is that we're actually less seasonal than most traditional retail businesses. If you think about a major retailer, particularly the department stores, let's call it conservatively, 45% of their business is Q4. And really, it's November, December, let's be honest, Black Friday on. And so when we're, when we think about retail in those terms, we're actually much less seasonal. Uh, we have a peak in the summer. Um, but when you look at us at our business by quarter, what you see is that we have a really strong resort travel business. Um, let's call it Jan Feb. Then you have spring break in March and then we build to the summer months. And then, of course, um, most people don't realize we have a large apparel business. We, we've um, since May of 2017, we've launched loungewear, cozy, comfy sweaters, pajamas, intimates. We have some really fun categories coming this Q4. And from that perspective, we're seeing that exceptional growth, 5X growth in those categories um, as well. And so the, the Q4 business around gifting and, and, and a lot of times people want to say that we quote pivoted through the pandemic. What's, but what's fascinating because we never wanted to be seen as a swimwear only brand. We had launched apparel in a big way in Q4 of 2019 ahead of holiday. So we were able to continue telling that story to the consumer through the pandemic. And to your point on authenticity, it wasn't like, oh, hey, it's a pandemic. Here's pajamas. We had we had already been telling that story, right? And so she trusted us to meet her needs during that time. I really appreciate that. And I haven't heard that yet on the show about how retail really is a seasonal business, if you think about it, with that, you know, Black Friday to the holidays uh, period. When you were fundraising, what was maybe like the main reason why an investor might pass on on Somersault? Yeah. So, so what's interesting, I think we learned early on as female founders that one thing people don't realize is that female founders are asked kind of risk mitigation questions or prevention questions 65% of the time. Men only get those questions 35% of the time. And so we really learned quickly to reframe around the growth story and to make sure that we were painting the biggest picture of what Somersault could be. And so not allowing ourselves to get mired in those sort of risk mitigation questions. So essentially, you know, when an adventure investor in particular, let's say they're writing a million dollar check, well, they want to know how they can make $20 million, not how they can protect the $1 million, right? And so from that perspective, we knew that Somersault could be a billion dollar revenue brand in, you know, a relatively small amount of time um, in the grand scheme of things. And so from that perspective, if we never got to that billion dollar brand story, it was going to be really difficult to fundraise. And so we just made sure that we were telling the, the, the growth story over and over again. That's how we handled it. No, that's really interesting. So it's more so concentrating on how big of a business Somersault could be instead of saying, we're not, trust us, like we're not going to go to zero. 
we're not going to go to zero. So it's it's more so in that way. Correct. That's amazing. What's one thing that you actually change about the fundraising process? So a couple of things. I mean, it's fascinating to think that anyone who's fundraising today is doing it almost exclusively on Zoom to those really later stages. So I find that so fascinating, so much easier probably for people. Uh, we, we were on the road constantly, uh, which, you know, is fun. It's great to meet the people. Everyone's interesting. Everyone has fantastic energy and is pretty like-minded. Um, but from that perspective, I think fundraising for founders has really changed. I also think it makes it harder to break in because, you know, when you meet people in person, they're just, you know, usually you can connect with them a little bit easier than on Zoom. So from that perspective, maybe for underrepresented groups, it might be a bit more challenging. And, and by that, I mean people of color and, and women in particular. We know that only three, zero three percent of venture capital is going to women founders, uh, today, which is just abysmal. And, and, you know, so anything we can do to make the odds a little bit better in our favor, is always really important. As far as what we changed, I think just the approach to the growth story, like I mentioned, that's the number one thing. And, and that framework of really answering questions, making sure that we got to the story we wanted to tell about Somersault, not following into those those traps um, from a, a limiting perspective is really important. And the other thing to note is just to learn from every conversation. So I think Reshma, my co-founder, and I got better and better uh, after every conversation at really recognizing those cues, what was working, what wasn't. Good founders really can read a room and really all good biz- business people. And so you can understand how the feedback's going um, understand what sequencing from a pitch perspective works, um, and then just make sure that um, you were reading your audience well and and following sort of, I don't want to say their lead, but just, just make sure that you were understanding um, their own agenda and then just making sure that you didn't talk to people where your concept was not a fit for their portfolio. I think that's just don't waste time. I mean, those are all excellent points. It reminds me too a little bit, just also my conversation with Sarah LaFleur because she was saying how, you know, some investors passed uh, male investors because, and she appreciates their bluntness that they just don't understand it because, you know, it's not, they're not the customer. And I think what's tragic in that, I don't know if you, if you came across that with Somersault as well, but um, I think that what's tragic about in where the woman is the customer is that if the overwhelming majority of venture capitalists are male and if they, on the consumer side of things, only want to invest in brands that they quote-unquote understand, right, or, or have the concept of understanding, then it's really going to be hard to change that 3% and get that 3% rising, right? Yeah, and again, that goes back to just not understanding the market potential uh, for the business. And, and so again, the answer is get to the growth story, make sure that the numbers are clear, both on market size, as well as the bigger opportunity. And for us, you know, I always remind investors, apparel is one of the few trillion dollar industries in the world. And so if you think about those generation defining lifestyle brands, and there are many American apparel kind of lifestyle brands that we've seen succeed over the last 50 years. You know, let's go to the Nikes of the world, the Lululemons of the world, never mind the Tory Burches. I mean, we have a lot uh, of lifestyle brands um, that have seen success. It's really important for um, investors to understand a brand like Somersault that has that early traction shows the kind of early indicators for that kind of success and just tell that story. 
I love that. I love that. Um, we also talk a lot on this show about, um, especially in today's age where Google ads, Facebook ads, it's pretty saturated. And so building an e-commerce business today, you really need to build community and also focus on organic. I know we talked quite a bit about organic, but I'm curious, how do you think about retaining those customers? Think about building community and have them still be part of the Somersault brand. Yeah, I think engagement is is key. And so it's really about optimizing the consumer journey, both pre-purchase, during purchase, that experience, we want it to be positive. And then, of course, that post-purchase engagement is critical to the life of the company. And, and we're one of the things we're most proud of is just those exceptional repeat rates that we see from consumers at Somersault. And again, I think it goes back to we're really, one, solving a need for her from a product perspective. Two, our brand is fresh, new, positive, joyful, exactly where she is um, emotionally at, at this time. And then three, uh, making sure that that purchase experience and then everything around it is really optimized for her life and we make it as easy as possible on her. I also wanted to talk a little bit about COVID too. If you've noticed buyer preferences, buyer changes, I mean, what was kind of going through your mind during March, 2020 um, as relates to your, to your business? And did you have to, um, I know we talked a little bit about loungewear, but what were maybe some other instances that maybe you had to think about in relation to, uh, to Somersault and, and of course your customer? I'm incredibly proud of our team. So through COVID, um, and it's just unbelievable for that the whole world is still dealing, dealing with it. But um, really, we started dealing with COVID early because we were seeing disruption in our supply chains, particularly in Asia and China to begin with. And, and so I was in Asia in late January of 2020 with my team. And what's just really fascinating is that I left a day early, had a conversation with our head of product development and sourcing and she was flying back through Shanghai and he said, don't you want to go the other direction? Um, instead of Shanghai, she's like, no, I'm fine. I'll, I'll make it. And it's very expensive to change right now. Don't worry about me. And I'm like, okay. And I was flying back through the Middle East. And so I get on the plane. It was 1 a.m. Cause a lot of times when you leave Asia, you leave in the middle of the night to, to land at an appropriate time. And I opened the New York Times and it was literally you know, all about COVID. And so I immediately uh, started calling the offices, which were still open in the U.S., and just said, hey, we've, we've got to get the team home through the Middle East. Do not fly anybody through Shanghai. And it turns out um, the Shanghai airport would have closed immediately after um, our head of product and sourcing would have landed. Thankfully, the team just went ahead and bought her uh, a flight. She was asleep, no idea all of this was happening, and and never mind the potential for exposure as well. So all of that was happening. Uh, we had certainly supply chain delays, um, but we never were without supply, which I think is just a testament to our diversification. And we really had already focused on diversifying our supplier base, both geographically and just from a overall category perspective. And that really benefited us. We saw our business just plummet overnight in March of 2020. And so um, we immediately went to 
what I refer to as a cash conserve model, which is, which is fascinating because a, a series B stage startup like Somersault, a high flyer should never do that. And so really it's just a fascinating experiment, experiment. Um, the team did exceptionally well. And it's fascinating because we haven't raised since December of, of 2019. So, uh, from that perspective, um, you know, really did extend, uh, runway. And then we realized that the consumer just wasn't going to be in the same place, both from a product need perspective as well as from a messaging perspective. So we moved quickly to lean into categories like pajamas. So to give you an idea, we might have had a cover up or a dress or something you might wear on vacation. And where we could, we put that into pajamas, the, the fabrications. We tried very hard not to damage any of our partners. So if they needed payment early, we would pay them early. Um, just to make sure that everybody was making it through, we maintained those great relationships. And then we also got the goods that we needed at the right time for our consumers. And, and to give you an idea, we, we touched a hundred percent of all purchase orders in Q2 of 2020. We either shifted to other categories, maybe delayed that production or reduced quantities. Again, it was not about damaging our, our vendor base. It was about delaying delivery, but made sure we had the right product at the right time. And then we equally shifted on the marketing side. Every sort of campaign we had planned and work had to be re- redone um, across the board because it just wasn't resonating in light of COVID. And I think um, I'm most proud of our our team in regards to Joycast, which is a helpline text line that consumers could text for a bit of good news, going back to the joy that really Somersault believes uh, brings to their lives. And our team loved it and consumers loved it. The Joycast was covered everywhere from Harvard Business Review to, to Fast Company. And so I think clearly was we were a, a leader in the space. And I'm kind of curious, since now we've been in, you know, COVID now for 18 months, how are you looking at the picture? Are you still in like that kind of same mode or, or is it kind of shifted? Yeah, what's, what's so fascinating, Mike, is that we didn't know what the remainder of the year was going to look at like in 2020. Like it was clear, no one did. So um, what's most fascinating is the consumer returned by May of 2020. And so we were back to those pre-pandemic levels through the summer, which is just absolutely fascinating, you know, growing at, you know, well above, you know, anticipated plan for the year and continuing at that, uh, that pace and even, you know, seeing some just exceptional numbers uh, through 2021. So we are really fortunate to know that, you know, now in, in hindsight that, yeah, the customer did come back. And um, we also quickly realized that consumer behavior, as you know, had changed forever through the, the pandemic. And so those brands that we all tried, and there were many of them, right? So much consumer behavior changed and we were willing to try it through the pandemic, which is just so fascinating. And we saw that as a, a, an opportunity, again, to meet her needs at the right time and to gain her trust and to continue to sell to her over and over again. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I love Peter Thiel's Zero to One. Um, And my personal and professional life is just, you know, so blended right now. The other book I've read lately that I think is fantastic is Billion Dollar Brand. And it really 
profiles, the early direct-to-consumer startups, as well as some of the um, technology infrastructure and, and other vendors to those brands. So highly recommend uh, those two. Cool. That's awesome. Really excited to add them to our uh, website. I don't think we've had anyone yet mention billion dollar brand. So that's awesome. That's great. What's the best piece of advice that you've received in relation to entrepreneurship? I received this advice and I always pass it all along. Just the highs are never as high as you think they are, and but neither are the lows. And so if you can just enjoy the ride and remain relatively steady, um, still celebrating the victories, um, but making sure that you understand um, everything has a, a time. And we talk a lot about sequencing at Somersault, stage-appropriate challenges, stage-appropriate objectives. And so I think, you know, we talked about physical retail. When is it stage-appropriate to tackle physical retail? And just think about everything in regards to sequencing, um, and it helps so much. Got it. So think much more methodically. Um, and also don't get kind of too wrapped up in the lows or too wrapped up in the highs. Just remain kind of even keeled because it's, it's very, very much a long game. Well, Lori, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being a fantastic interviewer. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate you coming on the show. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Lori. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.